0: Oh, well, it's good to be back with you. The, uh, the verse that, you know, you always see this verse when I start my slide, all because I put them at the beginning of every slide presentation. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we use this verse to prove dispensational teaching and to get into dispensational teaching. And it's been overused for that. I don't believe that's what Paul had in mind here at all. Uh, I believe Paul was rightly dividing the word of truth When he told the Corinthians, I cannot uh, teach love to you folks, you're not ready. You're ready for the milk, not the meat. He wasn't telling Timothy, in this pastor's opinion anyway, he wasn't telling Timothy, now Timothy, make sure you don't go back and teach anything the 12 taught or get into the law at all because the law isn't for us. Timothy was with Paul throughout his ministry. Timothy knew that full well. But there are different people who need different slices of the pie depending on where they are in their learning process, like the saints in Corinth. And when Paul said, I couldn't teach, I had to stay with faith. Uh, the three issues that remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, uh, Timothy was being told by Paul, in, in my opinion, to give the people, to hand the pie out depending on what the people need. Not to, it wasn't to develop a denomination called right division, although I believe in right division. Uh, Paul wasn't doing that. But we use this verse, it's our our um, key verse, you could say, in teaching people what dispensation is all about. But have you ever felt like in your Bible studies, kind of like this guy, um, what do you, what do we know about different things? For instance, um, there are some terms in the Bible. I think we all should have a definite understanding of what these terms mean. And if I said these are the terms that we should really understand, fully understand what they mean, And if somebody were to say, can you define what that means? We should be able to say yes. Because if we don't know what these terms mean, we can get really mixed up. For instance, how many arguments have taken place over when did the body of Christ begin? Who's in the body of Christ? Do you remember the argument years ago of 12 in, 12 out? And people were dividing over that issue. Um, When did the dispensation of grace begin? Are they the same thing? Um, So When did the church today begin is a great question. Uh, What church, how many churches? So we need to study some of these things out just so we know where they are. Um, For instance, here are some Bible terms to understand. And if you just look at those very quickly, uh, how many could you define? I know what that means. I understand that fully. Dispensation, redemption, propitiation, imputation, reconciliation. justification, sanctification, gospel. Is there only one gospel in the Word of God? Or is there only one person who is a central focus of every gospel that's in the Word of God? Uh, Those are things to understand. Uh, Did Paul and Peter teach the same gospel? Now most in, in the area of right division would say, no, they didn't teach the same gospel. But I'm here to tell you they did teach the same gospel, but it wasn't the gospel of Christ because Peter taught a different one. Peter taught the Gospel of Christ later on, which I'll prove to you. Um, Elect, what does that mean? Who are the elect? You know, the the argument between the Arminian side and the Calvinist side, uh, or, you know, there's there's a sovereignty as they call it. Uh, One church, how many churches? Well, Paul said there's, you know, one body in Ephesians, what is that? Uh, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So these are areas of the Bible we need to understand. When you get into the, the first one, dispensation, you learn some things about communion and prayer. And uh, issues like that, baptism, communion, prayer, all fit within the dispensational cornerstone. Can everybody hear me okay? I don't know if that's what you went up to do or not. Okay. Uh, so let's look at dispensation And we'll take these terms uh, over the weeks, we'll take these terms um, one at a time and define them. But uh, dispensation is the Greek word oikonomia. Now, you can hear an English word in that, can't you? Oikonomia, it's the word economy. We get our word economy in English from the Greek oikonomia. And it means the house rules governing something. For instance, There are different economies. We think of of money when we think of the word economy, so let's look at it in that respect for a moment. There was a time when the barter system was in place. That was how people dealt. They bartered their goods. One, you know, if you you need a dozen eggs, well, I've got the chickens, but I happen to need some sausage, so uh, maybe deer sausage, if you have venison, whatever. They bartered. Then there was a command or government-governed economy. Uh, We know what that is, where the government decides, a committee decides what's going to be be planted, what's going to be sold, who's going to buy it, how much the price will be. There's a market-governed economy. What would we call that? Well, that's capitalism, where the market decides the price and how much is produced. And then there's a mixed economy. Um, We kind of have a mixed economy today. But the idea is not which is best. The idea is they're different. They're different economies, different ways of doing business, we could say, or governing an administration. Uh, There are different economies when it comes to the Word of God. There was a conscience economy before the law was ever handed down. Now, the law is called the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament, the word testament, uh, has to do with the law program. A testament is the law program. So how much of your Bible has nothing to do with the Old Testament. How much of your Bible prior, I should say, to Paul has nothing to do with the Old Testament? How about before God called out Abraham? The first 11 chapters of your Bible are before any program with Abraham or any law. In fact, more than that. So we would legitimately say that's pre-Old Testament even though the publishing houses put Old Testament New Testament, so we divide the Bible without knowing the difference. We divide the Bible into Old Testament New Testament in our minds, and we say, well, the Old Testament was for the Jews, the New Testament's for us. That's, that's common teaching, Old Testament for the Jews, New Testament for us. But Genesis, a lot a lot of the first part of Genesis is pre-Old Testament because the law wasn't handed down in the first part of Genesis. God was dealing ev- with everybody alike according to their consciences. We know that went south, didn't it? As every man was doing what was right in his own eyes and they were worshiping idols and when they knew God, they didn't want to retain him in their thoughts. So God called out one man, Abram, through which he would form a nation of 12 tribes. And through that one man and to that nation, God would give the law. So there's a different economy. Now God was dealing with everybody according to a law program that he had established. But he only put Israel under that law program. He never put any other nation under that law program. But Israel were the people that thought they could perform sufficiently to be righteous in God's mind. So they were the strict keepers. They were called Pharisees. The strictest sect of law keepers were the Pharisees. And God gave them the law not to show them how to be good and how to earn his favor, but to prove to them they could never do it. The law wasn't given to make anybody good. It was given to prove all people have a sin nature and all people are rebellious. How many are good according to Paul? (laughs) None good, not even one. So, the law was given to prove to mankind that when we give the law, when God gives the law, to the most strict performers you could ever find in the world, they couldn't keep it. Not one of them could keep it. Not a single Jew could ever keep it. By the works of the law there shall how many be justified according to Paul? So. The law proved all mankind lack righteousness. And it's not righteousness by law keeping, it's righteousness that's necessary that compares to God's righteousness. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, I'll let this pass this time. Well, I'll just uh, look over it, um, uh, let that go, we'll ignore it. Um, He shows mercy to whom He'll show mercy under the law program. He'd be gracious to whom He'd be gracious. But according to God, every little minor flaw in a person needs to be punished. Every single, the smallest thing in your mind you could ever do that was wrong was worthy of hell. And so God had to take care of that issue for everybody, not just for one or two, but for everybody. He had to take the sin question off the table of God's justice, and He did. But we automatically assume that if he's not counting sin against people, then everybody's going to be in heaven. That's wrong. <laughs> Everybody won't. Because the, cha- the, the, the issue changed from the sin issue to the son issue. Who will believe? Who is willing to believe that Jesus Christ resolved the sin issue for the entire human race? When he died at Calvary, taking that sin upon himself, he died for a reason. He paid for that sin. If He paid for it and God the Father accepted the payment, sin is no longer the issue for anybody in the world. Therefore, forgiveness is no longer the issue for anybody in the world. The forgiveness has been given. Acceptance of that forgiveness is the issue because God gave all men volition. So every man has a responsibility to either accept what Christ did as being sufficient where his sins are concerned are not accepted so hell will be full but not of people paying for the sins Christ already paid for hell will be full of people who've rejected the fact that Christ paid for them so there's only one way to go to hell it's not a a wide as the way that uh, that leads to, to hell it's only one way to go to hell that's to reject what Christ did for your sins at Calvary what he accomplished when he died for them Because there are a lot of people that believe that he died for them and was buried and rose again, but he didn't accomplish anything when he died for them. And that's not true. He accomplished something major when he died for them. He took them off of the table of God's justice. So hell will be full of people who reject that Christ died. They refuse to accept that Christ died for their sins. The Jews refused to accept that early on uh, because they didn't want to give up their sacrificial system. That was their forgiveness system and they'd had that for 1,500 years. If you had a way to be forgiven for your sins in the mind of Almighty God, and you've been under that way for 1,500 years, how willing would you be to give that up if somebody came along and said, you don't have to do that anymore? Forget going to the temple with your sacrifices and forget offering your sacrifices for your forgiveness. That's no longer the way. Just trust that Christ became the greater sacrifice and the forgiveness system is finished. Well, the Jews weren't willing to do that. They wanted to hang on to that, which is what the book of Hebrews is trying to teach them. Christ is the greater sacrifice. You don't need sacrifices anymore. You don't need forgiveness anymore. We still need forgiveness on an earthly level, person to person. And so we forgive, but we're willing to forgive people who meet our criteria for forgiveness, aren't we? Uh, If you're good to me, if I like you, if you come to me and apologize and tell me how sorry you are and you'll never do that again, then maybe I'll forgive you for what you've done, and we'll forgive people we love a lot faster than we will people we don't love. Um, But the issue is no longer forgiveness. Uh, We have forgiveness here, but the issue between us and God has been resolved because Christ reconciled us to God where our sins are concerned. He reconciled the whole entire human race to God where their sins are concerned. And so this is the message that, that God has given us as His ambassadors to relay to the world, because. There's something sitting in this message that's greater than any man can really comprehend with a sin nature and a finite mind, and that's the love of God. That's the love of God. Uh, God's love is so great that His Son could take on the sin of people like Jeffrey Dahmer, if you remember him, or Hitler, or the guys that flew the planes into the Twin Towers, Um, all taken care of by Jesus Christ because He paid the penalty God exacted on His own Son for that sin. So to take the sins of the entire human race when at that time Paul tells us the entire human race were enemies of God <clears throat> to take their sins and pay for them. That's a love we don't understand. But now we're called to love others through that lens, so to speak. And that's difficult to do. Difficult for me to do. I I don't do it like I should do it. I don't think any of us do. But we need to comprehend Paul said how great God's love is. If we could comprehend God's love, it would help us to see other people in a different light and be free. Uh, Instead of looking to friends, instead of looking to spouses or mates to meet our sole need for unconditional love, forgiveness, acceptance, um, we should stop looking for other people to meet those needs because God is the only one that can meet those needs. No one else can meet them but God. And so if we stop looking for those because we have them, they now belong to us, we're free to give them to other people now. We're free to unconditionally love other people, even our enemies. We're free to accept them and forgive them because of the forgiveness we've already got. Isn't that what Paul said? Uh, forgive others even as Christ, God for Christ's sake hath already forgiven you. In Colossians, he tells us everything. He's forgiven us everything. Well, let's take a look at dispensation so that we can understand more about God, learn more about Him and His Son, and why the different dispensations. And the different dispensations in Scripture are all designed to teach that no man has what it takes through any effort of his own. No matter how serious he is, no matter how dedicated, no matter how committed, no man has the ability to earn God's favor and his righteousness through his performance. No man does. Without the love of God, we're all sunk, we're all lost. <laughs> Without the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no everlasting life. Uh, not with God. So let's go ahead and move it forward if we can. Economia simply means the administration of something. Uh, the manner which God is dealing with mankind. And while God never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, he'll always be the same in those attributes that make him God. God can't change. But he has indeed changed in the manner in which he has dealt with man throughout the ages. We're not building arcs. I think you were taught that probably last week or so. Um, You know, you can prove that God has dealt differently with mankind throughout throughout the ages of history. So think of a dispensation as the way that God has dealt with man. There's only two dispensations we need to really concern ourselves with thoroughly, and that's the difference in the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. We need to really understand that that distinction. So we know that there was a time, you've got Adam back there, before the law was given. That would be pre-Old Testament. Then you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel. In Israel, the man Israel had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel, and God began dealing with a nation, and he gave them patriarchs, judges, kings, prophets. He gave them John, the forerunner of Christ, to teach them about how the law wouldn't work for them and how they didn't measure up. We often think Christ came to teach Israel what to do to earn God's favor. He didn't come to do that at all. Christ never came to teach about his death, burial, and resurrection. He came to teach Israel that they were not obeying the law they swore they could uphold perfectly and consistently. His purpose for Israel is to show them, you're coming short, you're coming short, you're not measuring up. Oh, you're asking how many times you should forgive? Uh, you, You forgave seven times and you think that's sufficient? Christ came to prove there was no fruit of righteousness on the fig tree nation. That's what he came to do. So, but now we need to be careful not to say, well, we can't look at anything that's in red in our Bibles and ignore those words because uh, we don't listen to Jesus. We don't follow Jesus after his earthly ministry. Uh, Yes, we do in many areas. Paul said, follow me in the manner in which I follow Christ. Paul followed Christ according to his heavenly ministry, didn't he? But Christ said many things in His earthly ministry that tie in to His heavenly ministry. And we'll look at that. Um, then we have a grace, dispensation of grace. And there's ages to come when we know there, there's a tribulation period, an Armageddon's in the future, lays in the future, uh, or lies out in the future. But the big difference we need to understand thoroughly in our minds is the difference in law, a law economy, and a grace economy. So let's take a quick look at the law economy. The law economy is a national economy. Why do I call it a national economy? Because God never put any Gentile under the law. Unless you were living with a Jew and were converting to Judaism, you weren't under the law. But if you were living in the home of a Jew, you had to follow the practices the Jews had to follow and you became a part of that we could say a proselyte to to Judaism. And so somebody living with a Jew, their hired hands, their hired help, they had to be circumcised, the males had to be circumcised the same way, way that Israel did because they could be numbered with the nation. God was not dealing with Gentiles because we have three cases. God gave them over, uh, we read in Romans one twenty-eight. So the Gentiles, which everybody was before the nation Israel was, uh, was formed through a man taken out of the Gentiles, uh, that program is no longer in existence. Is conscience still there? Yes. But consciences can be improperly programmed today. Consciences can be scarred, uh, the Bible tells us. So we don't strictly go with conscience today. We have to use the Word of God to validate what our conscience might be telling us. But then God called Abram out and began a national economy. He wasn't dealing with Gentiles any longer. Which is why Christ, when He came, looked at that Syrophoenician or Gentile lady and said it's not appropriate to cast the bread belonging to the children, the children of Israel, to the dogs. Because God was no longer dealing with Gentiles unless they came to Him through Judaism. Unless they proselyted to Judaism and became numbered with the people of God, which was the nation Israel. So think of that law program and the 12 tribes of Israel put under that law as a national economy. God was dealing with a nation. Now, yes, there were individuals within that nation, but it's a national dealing. So who would God, who would we deal with today if, for instance, and I think I mentioned this earlier, if Russia decided they wanted to to deal with the U.S.? Would they come to your house or my house to do that dealing? They go to our leadership, wouldn't they? Those who represent us. And who represented Israel under the law program? Who was the representative? Who was Israel's leadership? Her political and religious leadership was one and the same, and it was the priesthood. So God was dealing with the priesthood of Israel, believe it or not, we can show that, which is why the miracles were done right there in the, in the temple, right at the door of the temple. Uh, three major miracles so the priesthood could see what was happening. But it was a priesthood who always rejected Christ and Paul. (laughs) It was a priesthood, Uh, their political religious leadership that wanted Christ dead and wanted Paul dead. Uh, So we're looking at this fig tree nation and they're called the fig tree nation because uh, the figs were used by Adam and Eve to cover themselves, remember? so they could appear righteous before God. They covered themselves with fig leaves. Did the fig leaves work? They had to be clothed with the skins of their sacrifice. Fig leaves represent man's attempt at righteousness through his performance. That's fig leaf. That's what it represents. So, God was dealing with the fig tree nation because when He gave them that law, they said they could do it. Let's take a look. Now, we're not looking at the Gentiles. We're not looking at the grace. We're only looking at God's program with Israel. So let's we'll see if we can get this to work. And what nation, go back to that again, and what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments, so righteous is all this law which I set before you this day? Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. There's nothing wrong with the law. It was given to prove man's inability. Uh, grace was given uh, that or the law was given that sin would do what? Abound or decrease? Abate. Abound. So the law gave man's sin nature inside him, and we all have it, a reason to rebel. Don't walk on the grass. Don't sit on the table. Don't touch the wet paint. Um, that's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let my people go. Well, he didn't cause Pharaoh not to be able to believe. He didn't harden his heart and say, I'm not, you, I know you want to believe in me, but I'm going to harden your heart so you can't. That's not what that's about. He gave Pharaoh's sin nature something by which Pharaoh would rebel. Let my people go. Now, what did God know was in Pharaoh's heart when he said that that would cause Pharaoh to harden his heart against God's command? It was a command to let the people go, and he knew Pharaoh didn't want to do that. So he hardened his heart by giving, him a, giving his sin nature a command, and Pharaoh stiffened up against that command. so, don't look at it like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Poor old Pharaoh wanted to believe in the worst way, but God just wouldn't let him. That's not how he hardened his heart. Um, So, God put Israel under law, and he made made them some promises in the administration of the law. He made Israel some promises. Look at his national proposal. This isn't a proposal to an individual. It's a proposal to a nation as a whole. Now, therefore, largest two-letter word you'll ever find in your Bible, if... Conditional, if ye, did he say if you personally or is this plural, if ye as a nation will obey my voice indeed and keep my law, that's the same word as covenant, then ye as a nation shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye as a nation shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel and the Gentiles later on. (laughs) Or was this Israel? Only Israel. So we can't go back under the law. The law should never be the governor of our liberty today. Never use the law to govern what you allow yourself to do and not to do. That's legalism. Love is the governor of our actions today and our thoughts. We're to use love to govern our activity with others today, never law. So Israel was made a promise. Did you read heaven or hell into there, or did you read that they could be a nation above all the nations? This is a national promise about them being elevated to a position above the Gentiles, a nation above all nations, the nation Israel, and under the nation Israel would be the Gentiles. And if you wanted to come to God, you'd better proselyte to Judaism or come through the nation Israel's uh, relationship with God. Now, look at the offer, Exodus 24, 7. And he took the Book of the Covenant and read in the audience as Moses, read in the audience of the people, and they said, "'All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient.'" Would you say there's a little bit of pride sitting in that statement? <laughs> A little bit of arrogance. You know, fleshly man. Now, here it is again. Deuteronomy 6, and it, keeping that covenant, shall be our righteousness. You want to know, you want to count us righteous, God? Well, you just look at how we obey your law and you can count us righteous to that extent. And they fully believe they would be. It'll be our righteousness if we observe to do three-letter word It's all important. Every bit, not mostly the vast majority of Some of the time, most of the time, all. No, all of these commandments, and they had to do it all the time. If they failed in one thing, they blew the whole contract out of the water. Keeping that law shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. Did they agree they would do it? Did they in their minds think they could do it? So they they needed a little humility, didn't they? They needed to humble themselves, which is a verse in their program in the law program, they have spoken words, Hosea said, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. I don't know anything about hemlock, but I've heard you don't want it growing in your garden. (laughs) So, they said they could do it. They fully in their minds thought they were capable of doing it. Then later on, they thought God considered them righteous just because they had Abraham as their father. They they were Jewish, so therefore God had to think they were a prize package of people. So there came a time when God put that program, national program, on hold. He didn't, didn't do away with it altogether. He put it on hold and He ceased dealing nationally, and He began dealing individually with everybody alike, all those Jews and all the Gentiles. He began dealing with everybody in a economy oikonomia of grace. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to continue dealing with you Jews under this law program, and now I'm going to deal with Gentiles over here. We'll have two programs going, two different gospels going. That's not right. When the economy changed, it had changed for everybody. And it was given to one man to tell everybody the change. Who was that one man? But Paul didn't say, okay, Uh, I'm going to tell you Gentiles how the economy is affecting you, but I don't want the Jews to know that because God's dealing with them under a different economy. Everything good for the Gentiles was good for for the Jews because the, the economy changed. God changed how He was dealing with all humanity. So when God changed how He was dealing with all humanity individually, He was dealing with the Jews from that point on the same way, not differently. You say, well, I thought we only read Romans through Philemon. No, the whole Bible's for us. It's not all about us because much of your Bible is about that law economy. But it's all for our study. So we know how grace and law are antithetical. What's the word? They don't have anything to do with each other. You can't can't, uh, fuse them together. But your iniquities, Isaiah said to his people, which would have been the Jewish people, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Did the Jews become that nation above all nations, that kingdom of priests, holy nation, peculiar treasure? No, they didn't because they failed the law. They failed the law they swore they could keep. Now God's offering them a way out as a nation. This is not to the Gentiles. This is back in Leviticus and God is offering Israel a way out of their failure. They could still become that great nation, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, above the Gentiles, but something had to take place for the Jews in order to be given that elevated status. If, notice the pronouns are not singular. This is a national offer. This is offered to the people of the nation. If they shall confess their iniquity, singular, and the iniquity of their fathers. Now if you had to confess your father's sins in order to be right with God, how many would you remember or know about to confess? This isn't about you. This isn't about confessing individual sins. This is about a singular iniquity with their singular trespass. So Israel committed a trespass, singular trespass, which Hosea just told us about. They lied when they said they'd entered that covenant with God, they swore falsely if they would confess their failure under that contract which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that also I have walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be what? Well, I guess they needed to humble their hearts. They thought they could keep that law. If they would confess that they failed the law, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember and I will remember the land." So if God's not gonna remember the land until Israel as a nation confesses they never had God's righteousness through their law keeping, has God remembered the land today? So don't fall for the 1948 hoax that that's when God began gathering Israel back to the nation. The Bible tells us when he's gonna do that and it's at his second coming. He's not going to gather Israel back to the nation and he's not going to remember the land until he does. So what we see over there is man's efforts and a United Nations decree that if you were Jewish, you could return to that that piece of property. But only this tiny little sliver, not everything God promised you. (laughs) So notice the pronouns are all plural. It's not a singular thing. It's a national program. Count the theys. See if you can count how many theys, thems, there. Count the words in blue and tell me how many you come up with. Anybody got an answer yet? How many? Twelve. 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 Isn't that amazing that there are twelve theirs and thems in that statement? And this is what people who study numerology say is the figure of government in Scripture, twelve. But twelve has to do with God's program with Israel thoroughly. Uh, as an example of that, oh, you already did that. Oh, what else going on? Oh. Israel's national program is full of twelves. Twelfth chapter of Genesis came the call of Abram. How many patriarchs from Seth to Noah? Twelve. How many patriarchs from Shem to Jacob? Twelve. How many sons of Jacob? How many tribes of Israel? How many judges raised to live Israel? How many years old was Jesus when He went into the temple and confounded those with their doctorate degrees in the law? It was 12 years of age. How many foundations of the New Jerusalem? How many precious stones garnish those 12 foundations according to Scripture? How many gates to the city according to Scripture? You see how 12 is, the, is called the number of government because Israel is under a law government. How many pearls are the 12 gates according to Scripture? Twelve. How many angels at the 12 gates? Twelve. How many thousand furlongs on each side is the new Jerusalem when it comes down? Twelve. How many apostles? Twelve. And we want to throw Paul in there as part of the law program? Uh-uh. Uh, Paul was born under that law program, but then God showed Paul a new way. And Paul was committed to, committed to Paul a dispensation or an economy of grace to reveal to how many men? To make how many men see? Now how, how come we sometimes in our thinking think, well, Paul was committed to make us see it and all the people from him forward, but he wasn't told to make Peter, James, and John see it because they were under that law program. He was told to make how many men see the fellowship or the uh, koinonia of the mystery? All people, because God was dealing with all people in an individual manner, no longer a national manner. There's no nation above any nation today. So if we honor the Jews as a nation today, we don't do it because they are in special favor with God today. They aren't. They're cast down to the level of the Gentiles so that God could raise us all up according to a new economy. But we will protect them because they are a valuable ally of the U.S. today. But we don't consider them uh, special in the eyes of God because they're living in Israel and they're Jewish. They're atheist, atheistic for the most part in, in, uh, in, Jew, in, in Israel today. They refuse to believe Christ was ever the Messiah. So it isn't the Jews that are in the land that are God's nation, Israel, when He begins to deal nationally. He'll call those people into the land uh, at His return according to Scripture. Well, this thing's not really working like it should. Oh, how many thrones (laughs) Well, they sit on? Twelve, I don't have everything on there, I guess. When they do that, the law contract nation. Who's that again? As a nation must make a law failure confession. If God's gonna put them above the Gentiles and have the Gentiles coming to God through them, which will one day take place. That's the only confession of sins you'll ever see in your Bible is the confession Israel was called upon to make that they failed the law contract. Do we need to realize we're sinners? Yes. But do we need to confess those sins to God in order to get God to forgive those sins? He's not counting those sins against the world according to Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. He counted them against His Son in place of the world. But if we think we're dealing with God, we want to accept grace and we want Him dealing with us according to grace, but then we think He's dealing with us according to law. That's in our minds, which is why the doctrine of thinking is such an important doctrine in your Bible. We'll be talking about that later on, the doctrine of thinking. So a law failure confession is required by the law contract nation. They've not made it. The prophets were calling upon them to make that confession. If we humble ourselves and pray and do what? Make our confession. What confession? Which sin you committed on which day to get God to forgive that sin? What did they have to confess? Their failure to do what they promised, their singular trespass. They lied, they swore falsely when they entered in that covenant with God. They couldn't keep it. Now watch the confession being made and tell me which sin is being confessed. Because it's not about sins being confessed, it's about their failure to keep the law. Nehemiah is making that confession. Let thine ear now be attentive, in his prayer to God, and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for whom? The children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my Father's house have sinned. That's a confession they had sinned. They didn't think they had sinned because they thought they were keeping the law. So their confession was, we didn't keep that contract. We never kept it. We haven't kept it since day one and our fathers haven't kept it. This is the, how you can confess your father's sins. I ha, if I was under the law, I'd say, I've never kept that law perfectly, consistently, the way you gave me to keep it to be righteous. And my father didn't and no one in Israel's ever kept it. That's the confession God's looking for from his nation. The psalmist made it. Notice he didn't say I. What's he say? We. He's talking about the nation. We have sinned with our fathers, along with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. You see how it's a national confession? Jeremiah starts out with what word? We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. We didn't keep that law contract and we swore we could. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. You see how it's a national confession? Daniel makes the same confession. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. Here's the confession. And said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his commandments, we, as a nation, have sinned, and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by, here it is, departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. And they said they could keep every one. And yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law. This is the only confession of sins you're going to find in your Bible. Realizing you're a sinner and confessing those sins to get forgiveness for those sins is a different issue altogether. There is still a national confession to be made and a national forgiveness to be obtained. And that's a national forgiveness so they can be put above the Gentiles. And the Gentiles can flock to them to learn about God all Israel have transgressed thy law even by departing the covenant that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we as a nation have sinned against him. You see what the law contract is all about? And God wants that confession by the law contract nation. If we, now 1 John, this is a verse we also often take as being about us, don't we? This isn't about us. John is speaking to his people, twelve tribes scattered abroad, if we, Israel, say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, Israel, confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us, Israel, from all unrighteousness. You see why it's important to see who that letter is written to? And it doesn't have your name on it or your address on it? Did John know the mystery, and did he know about what Paul was teaching? Yes, he did. But he's calling upon his people, Israel, to make their law of failure confession because until the nation makes that law of failure confession, they can never rise back up to the position God had in mind for them. And you're going to see that's what John's baptism was all about. Giving Israel the opportunity to be identified with a confession. John said, I didn't know Christ any other way, but that he be made manifest to Israel. That's why I've come baptizing with water. Water baptism was Israel's way that God was giving them to show their identification with the confession God called upon them to make. Now today, how many baptisms are there, according to Paul? One, and it's not water. (laughs) It has nothing to do with water. Now, if somebody comes to you and says, I want to be baptized, let's say... Let's put it a different way. A granddaughter, grandson comes to you and says, oh, we've been going to this church over here and I think I, know, I want to be baptized now. There are a lot of people who say, I'm not going to that, I'm gonna show that I don't believe that, I'm not going. Is it gonna hurt them? But would God rather they know the truth? Would God want them to know where they are and what baptism is in place today and to know that has nothing to do with their righteousness before God? Yes, he would. So my counsel would be, by all means, go. Show your granddaughter, your grandson how much you love them, go. But then use your connection with them and their identification with your uh, love of them to be able to later teach them the truth they haven't learned yet. We can become dogmatic in grace so that we wanna shove grace down everybody's throat and we become the most unloving people on earth. And that's happened in far too many instances. Uh, so I say, no, love them where they are. Um, and we often do that when we're trying to communicate um, the gospel of Christ. We often do that same thing. Uh, should we communicate the gospel of Christ with, um, with uh, don't you know that baptism, water baptism, is not for today? Uh, is that loving? <laughs> you don't attack somebody's denomination you know, or their pastor or uh, what they've, where they are at their place. Yeah, love them wherever they are. And by loving them, you keep those pride walls down. And when you keep the pride walls down, you're much more apt to be able to get grace message in and grace truth in. Uh, so we'll stop there today. We'll pick it up here with uh, uh, dispensation and understanding more about that term uh, in our next study, next Sunday, next Sunday morning in our, in our study. Let's look to learn in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much that you uh, are the definition of love It is who you are. Uh, You define that word by who you are, and we know we come far short of it. And uh, My prayer is that we grow in it, that we grow in grace, and that we grow in love, and that we might come to understand your love for us in order to understand how we can love others in the same manner. We thank you so much for all you are and for who you've made us to be in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.